Hello, welcome to Sunday School, or we should say Christianity 101. This is going to be lesson number 10, and this is entitled Communion, or the Celebration of the Lord's Supper. Uh, this is an exciting message. It can often get, can become a religious pattern for people if we're not careful, but there's something very powerful about communion. The Lord Jesus instituted it, and the Apostle Paul reiterated it in 1 Corinthians 11, and it's something we need to understand so that we can make the most of it every time we receive the Lord's table or communion, whether that be once a month like we do in our church or on special occasions like weddings or Christmas Eve services or Easter services. Anyway, let's jump into our lesson. We're going to see what uh, we need to learn about this. Communion is one of the few rites we celebrate as a Christian. Now, not right like civil right or personal freedom right, but R-I-T-E, right. A right is defined as a solemn religious act or ceremony. There aren't too many rites we celebrate as Christians, but one of them is communion. Water baptism is a religious act or ceremony we observe, we participate in. Baby dedication as well. Baby dedication is found in the book of, uh, in the Old Testament, I believe Deuteronomy. We know the Lord Jesus was presented to the Lord after his mother had, had healed from her um, delivery. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy, or maybe it is uh, Exodus, gives strict law for when you would do this under the Old Testament. It was after the woman had stopped bleeding and after her healing had taken place in her womb, she would then come, I believe it was 30 or 38 days after the baby's delivery, she would command it to then come and present the baby to the Lord. We do that today. We call it baby dedication. We also have the rite of wedding. A wedding is a religious ceremony. And to that end, I might add, for a long time, the state was not involved in weddings. It was an act between a man, a woman, and God. So it was a religious ceremony. Nowadays, because we have so cheapened the right and the act of marriage, now we have the justice of the peace and Elvis impersonators in Vegas and uh, the judge at the courthouse wants to come or the county clerk can now marry you. But for many, many, many millennia, uh, civil leaders, civil governments were not involved in marriage because it was between God, a man, a woman, and in many cases a minister. And then what's uh, burial? Burial is probably the last one. There's probably only about five rites we celebrate as Christians. Water baptism, baby dedication, marriage or, or wedding, a burial, a funeral, uh, and then communion. And all of those are biblical. Communion is the celebration of the Lord's Supper, or as we call it, the Last Supper. And really, the Lord instituted it for us the night he was betrayed. Matthew 26, 26 through 28 says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it, and he gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood, of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So we see the Lord Jesus in Matthew 26 instituting the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, what has now ceremonially become communion for us. Now, I don't want the word ceremony to throw you off or to offend you. We, we have no better term in English that I know of to call it but ceremony. Because when we take communion, it is a special ceremony. And present in that ceremony is the presence of God. Now, theologically, there is what is called transubstantiation 
and consubstantiation. Those are big fancy words. Transubstantiation is what the Catholics or some many Catholics hold to that the body or excuse me, the bread and the juice, they believe it literally transforms into the literal body of Jesus Christ and the literal blood of Jesus Christ so that when you consume it, you're eating his flesh, literally, and drinking his blood, literally, based on John chapter 6. But Jesus came back and he, I don't want to say he adjusted his teaching, he brought the interpretation to his teaching in John 6 when he said, the flesh profits nothing, it is the spirit that quickeneth. And he was letting us know he was not teaching us to be cannibals, nor to believe in a transubstantiation. Consubstantiation uh, is the doctrine that says, when we receive communion, the presence of God is present. We absolutely believe that. We absolutely believe that when we do this with a right heart, receiving a little wafer uh, and a little cup of juice, that we believe the presence of God is with us because we're obeying the Lord Jesus. We're obeying the Apostle Paul. We, or we are obeying the scriptures. Why wouldn't the presence of God be with us? Now, I don't want to say we go so far as to believe the presence of God is in the wafer or the presence of God is in the juice because they are, after all, just tokens of our faith, much like a wedding ring is a token and a symbol of your love. But you wear it in faith. It symbolizes things. It's done by the presence, in the presence of God with the help of the presence of God. So I don't want the word ceremony to throw you off. A lot of what we do is ceremony. But when our heart is right and we're doing it by faith, the presence of God comes down and connects with it. The Lord Jesus gave us the explanation of the communion elements. The bread represents his body and the cup, which in some churches is still wine and other churches is usually juice, represents his blood. So the bread represents his body and the juice represents his blood. Now that's important because those are two different symbols. Those are two different elements, two different aspects of our salvation. And we know from 1 Corinthians 11, which we'll look at here in a moment, we know from 1 Corinthians 11 that as often as we do this, we do, show, we do show the Lord's death or remember the Lord's death till he come again. But we want to remember what he did in that death because there are two aspects of the Lord's table and two aspects of his atonement. We have the body that was broken and the blood that was shed. So the Bible is very clear. The bread is for our healing. So let's look at that. Jesus said the bread represents his body. His body was broken and beaten that our body might be made whole. We know that from 1 Peter 2.24 and also Isaiah. But look at Isaiah 50 verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters. Of course, these are messianic prophecies. This is Isaiah prophesying about the Messiah and what he would endure for us. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. Jesus fulfilled that. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. They did that as well. The gospels record. Not only did they smite his back, not only did they pull the, his beard out, but they spit on him. They struck him in the face. Uh, they, they were very ruthless to him. They made a mockery of his kingship by putting a purple robe on him and a crown of thorns and a scepter, uh, a reed for a scepter. And they smote the crown of thorns on his head and handed him the scepter and say, here you are, king of the Jews. And they mocked him. Isaiah 52, 14 in the NIV says, just as there were many who were appalled at him, 
his appearance was so disfigured that any of uh, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. This is a powerful verse that tells us Jesus was so abused, so tortured, so beaten by the Romans. As, as the NIV says, that his form was marred beyond human likeness. He was disfigured beyond that of any human being. Often in the news, if, you'll, if you check the news a lot on the internet, you can find mugshots of people. And I remember seeing one of, a, of a, a man who was caught by a rancher in Texas trying to assault his four-year-old daughter. And needless to say, that rancher did not show that pedophile any mercy. He nearly killed the man. And of course, if he had, there would have been no charges pressed against him because the pedophile was trying to rape a four-year-old. But I remember looking at that mugshot and the man's face was so horribly disfigured. It has to be something like what Jesus' face looked like. The man's face was swollen, lumps, bruises, gashes, blood swollen, eyes swollen shut. It looked like somebody had put a pumpkin underneath his skin. I think of that when I read this passage. And then in the New Living Translation, same verse says, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his, from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. I think about that. That was the body of the Lord Jesus being broken. And Jesus prophesied that hours before at the Last Supper. He said, this is my body broken for you. This is, this is prophetically explaining to us everything about him that was broken. We know from Psalms, everything about him was broken but bones. His face broken, his body broken, beat, torn, whipped. That's the bread being broken. And then Isaiah 53 prophetically and famously tells us why. English Standard Version. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Well, that's every wound inflicted upon him from the moment he began to take on sin. We, we believe that to be in the garden when he began to sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Because if he was sinless, he would have lived eternally in his natural body because his body did not have the sin nature. He was the second Adam, which means he was like the first Adam, or excuse me, we shouldn't say second Adam, last Adam, in that he had no sin nature. He was born of a woman though, without a sin nature, and did not have any physical ailment, any physical problem, no manifestation of the curse upon him until the garden. We see no signs of sickness, no signs of trouble, no signs of ailment, no signs of joint issues, no signs of eyesight issues, no signs of cavities, no signs of any physical degradation until the garden. When, as theology believes, as we believe, he began to take on sin and the sin of the world. 
And he began to draw, uh, uh, sweat great drops of blood. He began to shed blood for us in the garden in prayer. And even asking in the Lord, is there any other way? And then, of course, when the centurions began to whip him and beat him. It's interesting, the Jews didn't lay a hand on him to harm him. Even Judas said, treat him kindly. Isn't that sweet of Judas? It was the, the Romans who actually began to inflict damage to his body beginning with the crown of thorns, blindfolding him, smiting him, plucking out his beard, which you know had to draw blood. And then, of course, the, 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 the cat of nine tails, the scourging that took place on the whipping block. All of those are wounds. All of those represent breakings of his body. And Isaiah and Ma- uh, Matthew 8 and Mark 5 and First uh, Peter two twenty four and many other passages, Luke four, they let us know this was all done so that we might be made whole. We might be physically, supernaturally, divinely healed. Jesus had his beard plucked out, his face beaten beyond recognition, a crown of thorns thrust upon his head, and his back laid open by a cat of nine tails, all for our healing. We need to remember that when we're holding the bread in our hand next time we receive communion. That this little wafer, and honestly, it doesn't matter whether it's the kind of the Catholic thing that looks like a half dollar or the little thing we use that looks like a little tic-tac or whether it's a, uh, some churches use a loaf of bread and you pull off a piece, which I like that. It feels more authentic, more first century Palestine. Uh, we wouldn't do it here. I don't know. It might be a little difficult. We need to remind, be reminded that every time we take the bread, that this represents everything Jesus endured in his physical body before he died. And none of that killed him. He gave up his life. He gave up the ghost. That's what killed him. It wasn't the cross that killed him. He died on the cross, but it was not the cross that killed him. He commended his spirit into the hands of his father. That's how he died. He gave up the ghost. It wasn't taken from him. He said, I lay down my life, and because I lay it down, I can take it back up again. None of this torture, though, was necessary for our eternal salvation. Consider that. None of this torture was necessary to save us from hell. All all that is required to, to redeem mankind from sin is a sacrifice. Even when they sacrificed the lamb, they were very merciful with it. Slit its throat. It's very quick. Even to this day, even the Muslims, when they butcher their cows for halal, they slit the throat and bleed it out very quickly. This was brutal, sadistic torture. And it did not have to happen to save us from hell. But it did apparently have to happen to atone for natural sickness. So when we hold the communion elements, we need to be mindful that what we're holding in the bread was not necessary for salvation, but was very necessary, very, very necessary for the healing of our physical body. To that end, we should be a lot more thankful for divine health. To that end, we should labor in faith and prayers and fastings a lot more fervently to receive what Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Many years ago, we had a visitor from another church come here. He came from one of our local seeker churches, and, and he found us online. 
And he, he saw that we still believed in healing and gifts of the Spirit. And he came to have us lay hands on him because his church didn't do that. And he said, well, I, I want to have everything Jesus died to give me. I don't want him to die in vain. And, and I want the baptism of the Holy Ghost. And my wife needs healing. And I see that your church still practices those two. So I came to you for prayer. I like what he said. I'm grieved that the other church quit practicing the baptism of the Holy Ghost and laying hands on the sick. But I like what he said. I want to have everything Jesus purchased for me. I think Jesus wants us to have everything he purchased for us. Otherwise, why would he purchase it for us? So we need to keep this in mind. Every time we receive communion, that, that bread, that wafer. I was in Mexico one time. It was a tortilla. We tore off a part of a, t- a tortilla and passed it around. Whatever it is, it is symbolic and the presence of God is there as you receive communion to be mindful and receive healing and to, be, to, to set your heart, your mind, your affections on everything Jesus Christ endured so that we could be made healed and whole and strengthened in our physical body. We're not against medicine, by no means at all. I'm thankful for medicine. It's, it's a ministry of mercy. It's not God's best. Divine health is God's best. But take medicine and thank God for it. And take communion and thank God for it. But whatever you got to do, be thankful that God wants you healed. None of the torture was necessary for eternal salvation. The cross is what atoned for our sins. Not the sadistic punishment before the cross. As it says, cursed is every man that hangeth on a tree. He took upon himself the curse when he was nailed to the tree. He took upon himself the sins in the garden and began to be broken down as a human being. This breaking of the bread of life was for our physical healing. Communion gives us an opportunity to look at a piece of bread and remember the price that was paid for our healing. The breaking of the Lord's body did nothing for our sins. I'm going to read that again. The breaking of our Lord's body did nothing for our sins. It did everything for physical healing. It did nothing for our sins. Many, many have been tortured. Many have been uh, crucified. But only one man did it flawlessly in obedience to God, sinlessly. And that man redeemed us from sickness, disease, and also eternal damnation. He redeemed us from our own sin nature and our own sins. Only the blood can wash away sins. That's the second half of communion. We call it the cup. Our next portion says the cup for remission of sins. So the wine or juice represents his blood. Now I've still, I've taken communion probably within the last six, seven, eight years at different churches. Probably within the last eight years was the last time I had alcohol as a communion element. Uh, We were in an Episcopal church. I've received communion at Catholic churches and it was alcohol. And that's, that's just their tradition. That's their faith. I don't endorse alcohol at all. The Lord's table had wine at it. This is not a discussion for that. But we put the wine or the juice. In, in America, we use juice. We're always going to use juice. If I go take communion in Europe, it'll probably be wine. And it's going to be a swig about this big. And I'm not doing it to get drunk. I'm not doing it to unwind. I'm not doing it to relax. I'm doing it to remember the Lord's body. I do remember a story. I don't know if it's worth sharing. I was on a field trip to Washington, D.C. I was 10 years old. This would have been 1985 or 1986. 
And we went to the International Cathedral that had just recently been completed there in Washington, D.C. And I went, or maybe, I went, maybe it was when I was 12. I've been tw- I went twice as a kid. I think it was when I was 12. We went and uh, we had an opportunity on, the, on one of the mornings to go to church with the school. Imagine that. Back in the 80s, teachers would still take students to school or to church if they wanted to. And so it was, it's an international cathedral, but it's more Anglican, more traditional, more Episcopalian, kind of more Catholic. It's not Baptist. It sure ain't Pentecostal. It's beautiful. Got gorgeous stained glass windows. It's all pagan now, but back in the 80s, it still honored Jesus Christ a little. I remember there's, there's one stained glass on the right when you walk in, and it has the creation, and it has this earth and the sun and the moon. And the moon in the stained glass window is a real piece of rock from the moon that NASA donated to the construction of the International Cathedral. I remember that fact from 1985 or 87. Anyway, I took communion because that's what they were doing, and I was, I was raised Baptist, but I remember uh, the, the priest or whatever he was called, the bishop, he came and we had to kneel at the altar, which I like that. I like having to bend before your God. In many regards, I like many traditions as long as we don't get religious in our heart with them. There's a purpose behind all the traditions. It's not tradition's fault that religion perverts it or dries it out. But I like the kneeling aspect. Remember that Paul said, hold fast the traditions which you have received. Uh, That means also hold fast the heart of them. So we're kneeling at this thing. And somebody had told me, either put your hand out to receive the host. That's what they call the, the body or open your mouth and if you open your mouth the priest will place it on your mouth if you put it in your hand he'll put it in your hand and I wasn't really sure I remember I did both and I think he placed it in my hand I don't know if you can imagine Catholics used to seeing a mouth open or a hand out I had both so he put it in my hand so I, I ate the wafer and then he came along with the cup and it's this fancy golden goblet chalice thing and I thought oh grape juice and I was a little thirsty I'm a Baptist boy and, and he, so he, he, he holds the cup to you if you've never been to like an Anglican or a Catholic or Episcopal communion service, mass. He holds the cup and helps you drink it. I took the biggest swig on planet earth because I thought it was grape juice and I was thirsty. And I was either 10 or 12 and I was a little kid at 12, if it, even if it was 12. I remember walking out of that Catholic cathedral wondering what was wrong with me. I uh, shouldn't say Catholic, International Cathedral wondering what was wrong with me. And I remember being, looking back now thinking, I was buzzed. A little kid takes a big swig of wine, which is typically 10 to 12% alcohol by content. I walk out of there buzzed. And I remember thinking, something's wrong with that grape juice. And we walked to this minivan and I thought, my head is swimming. That's why we don't do alcohol. Because you don't want little 12-year-old kids walking in the minivan staggering with a buzz. Let us get back to something spiritual now and talk about the cup of, for remission of sins. His blood was shed for the cancellation or the remission of debt and sins. And thank God for it. His blood began to be shed in the garden. We often just think it was shed on the cross, but his his blood began to be shed in the garden. Then they put the crown of thorns. His blood began to pour down his head. And if you've ever had a head cut, a cranial cut, they bleed profusely. And then they punch him so you know his lips bleeding. They pull his beard out so you know his face is bleeding a little. And then they begin to scourge him. And I think we've all seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, and how truly sadistic that torture 
scenario was that was inflicted upon the Lord Jesus. The Hebrew from Isaiah 53 implies that with the whips, his back was one giant wound. Nothing left on it. No skin left on it. Probably not much muscle left on it. How he even carried the cross is unimaginable. His blood was shed from the garden all the way through the courts, all the way um, through, through the scourging process, all the way up the Via Della Rosa, the, the path of the cross, all the way to when they began to pierce his hands and feet. Blood was being shed over a great distance. It's amazing he had any blood left in him on the cross. And then, of course, ultimately, when the spear pierced his side, blood and water came out. It's, it's, it was a very horrific scene because that's what sin is, is horrific. Its atonement is a horrific yet beautiful thing. Hebrews 9.22 in the ESV, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. King James reads, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. By his shedding of blood, we have the remission, the cessation, the termination, the cancellation of debts, trespasses, and sins. The Lord began to shed his blood in the garden of Gethsemane as he sweat under the pressure of the cross. He continued shedding blood for, blood for us through his torture at the hands of the Romans and ultimately on the cross as his hands and feet were nailed and his side was pierced with a spear. So we see that in this cup, we now have a token to represent and, and symbolize and remind us of the blood that began to be shed in the garden and then at the hands of his mockers and his smiters and his shamers and his torturers. And then ultimately on the cross, as he's gasping for breath under the weight of his own body that's nailed to, to wood. We're to remember as we receive communion that this is blood shed for us so that we can have right standing with God. We have to, if, if we don't take time to understand what these two elements symbolize, communion will, will become very religious to us it will become a ceremony without any power. It's not meant to be a ceremony without power. It's meant to be a ceremony that can bring healing. It's meant to be a ceremony that can bring restoration. It's meant to be a ceremony that can bring deliverance. It's meant to be a ceremony that brings the power of God because we believe in consubstantiation. The presence of God is with us in these elements. They're not turning into anything but what they are. But what they are is very powerful. Our next section, we talk about this. There's no power in the elements. And I teach that because the whole transubstantiation Catholic thing is a little weird. I think it's a little kind of creepy that uh, that, that doctrine even subsists today or maintains today. It was developed much later, somewhere around the year 1000. I'm not accurate on that. It wasn't the first five or 600 years of the church I want to say between the year 1000 and 1400 is when the doctrine of the blood and the body in communion turning to literal blood and literal body. And I've always wondered if that's the case, why can't we just do a quick stomach pump and, and, and test the DNA? Because if you have blood in your stomach and flesh in your stomach, we ought to be able to test the DNA and see something. But and then again, that's a little morbid. 
We Catholics are very devout about this. No power in the elements. There is no actual power in our communion elements, only spiritual significance. But by faith, we can receive both healing for our body and forgiveness for our sins because these things have already been purchased for us. By applying our faith and a thankful heart during communion, we can quite easily receive both healing for our sickness and forgiveness for our sins. But both require faith to receive. I want us to, or I want you to, when you receive communion, I don't want it to just be a religious rigmarole. I don't want it to be a perfunctory going through the motions. I want it to be something sacred, something symbolic, something holy. In our church, when we receive communion, we don't do an altar call. I want communion to be the time we answer the call of God, whether it's repentance, rededication, whether it's to receive healing. In my opinion, when there's communion being served, there's no reason to give a rededication line. There's no reason to give a healing line. In my estimation of communion, the way I teach it, the way I believe it, if we're receiving communion, if we're partaking of the Lord's table, which represents fellowship with him, then I should have healing there. No hands necessary to be laid upon me. If if I'm sitting at the Lord's table and he's ministering to me, uh, I don't need to come down and rededicate my life. I can do it right there with him. So we, when we have communion, we use that as our altar time. We use that as our altar call. We use that as a time to receive healing. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six teaches us, For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do show the Lord's death till he come. The Bible doesn't tell us how often to do this. Some people take communion every day. Some people receive communion once a month. Uh, I, growing up Baptist, uh, we receive communion once a quarter because the church was so large. Catholics serve communion every mass and some Catholic churches have mass multiple times a day. Mass is probably more important to the Catholic than it is to the Protestant and I wish that wasn't so. I wish we could come back to a greater heartfelt understanding and appreciation for the Lord's table. This, let's see here. Communion is, is one way we can commemorate and remember the Lord's death, not just his resurrection. We love the resurrection. He was resurrected for our justification. But the Bible says we do show the Lord's death because when we eat the, the bread and drink the cup, we're talking about his mortality. We're talking about what was broken, what was shed. We're talking about the destruction of God. That gets a little trippy theologically. How can God ever not be God? How can God the Father and God the Son, who are one, how can they be divided and the Son say, why have you forsaken me? And God turn his back on God. How can God in a bodily form be all God, all man, and yet God die? We're to show and remember the Lord's death. It's a trippy little thing for our heads, but we're to ponder it. We're to meditate on it. We're to take the time to consider these truths that are communion. The body and the cup represent the Lord's mortality. And they show us that he was entirely God, but entirely man. And the second sin touched him, he was beginning to break down. His body could finally be broken. His, his blood could be shed. Communion is to be taken seriously. And so we teach this so that we have a more sacred heart, not to coin a Catholic term, a more sacred reverence, a more fearful 
reverence for the elements. The Bible tells us, gives us a couple warnings we're going to look at here, that we're not to do this lightly. We need to teach our children how important communion is and how significant communion is so that they can begin to partake of the Lord's table and understand the significance and the value and the high price the Lord paid. Communion not only represents our fellowship or communion with Jesus and his death, but it also represents our fellowship and communion with one another. After all, we are all members of his body. So we need to take this seriously. Communion and the Lord's table is somewhat of a a post-shadow or a post-reflection of what was called the peace offering. There's, There's a loose thread that runs from the Old Testament peace offering to the Lord's table. Under the Old Covenant, you had three offerings. You had the sin sacrifice, the sin offering. You had the burnt offering. Then you had the peace offering. Sin offering, burnt offering, peace offering. Now, I'm going to go very broad and general here so you see the pattern. The sin offering is what you offered up when you had committed a sin, a trespass, etc. And it had a prescription, a turtle dove or or a he-goat or ram of the goats or what have you, a heifer, that was your sin offering. After you had atoned for your sins, you had what was called the burnt offering. The burnt offering was another, it was uh, again prescribed and there was prescriptions for poor people as opposed to wealthier people so you could afford. That was put on the altar and it was burnt up and it was to symbolize your total rededication to God. You had sinned, you were apologetic, you were penitent, so you, you atoned for your sin, now you're rededicating. And so what you're saying through this burnt offering that has cost you something is that my life is on the altar like this heifer or this goat or whatever, and I will burn for you. I let my life be consumed for you. So the burnt offering represents rededication. And whatever was left over after the fire subsided, the, the worshiper was allowed to eat or take with him. What was not consumed, he was allowed to have, which is very symbolic of us today. When we dedicate our life to God, whatever he doesn't take, he allows us to have. Sometimes he'll take your hobbies. Whatever hobbies that he takes, he doesn't take away from you, you can keep. Sometimes he'll consume your free time. And whatever free time he doesn't consume, you get to keep. Too many Christians have never laid on the burnt offering, though, or the burnt altar. After you have atoned for your sin, after you have made a sacrifice on the burnt offering representing rededication, you would then bring what was called the peace offering. And the peace offering is basically a meal. It was some broth. It was a couple loaves of bread. It was some roasted goat or roasted lamb. And this, it it was a meal. There's no other way to look at it. It was what you would sit down and eat for dinner every night. But that offering was brought to the altar. And if God received your sin sacrifice, and if he received your burnt sacrifice, then a supernatural fire would fall and consume the peace offering, which was a meal. And it would represent and confirm to you that God accepts you and he sits at a table with you and will dine with you. We see that at the Lord's table at the Last Supper. He sat at the table and dined with them. We see that in the Revelation when Jesus says, open the door and I will come unto you and sup. I will come unto you and dine with you. This last table, this Lord's Supper, this communion is in a sense a modern day peace offering because it symbolizes our right standing with God. 
right standing through his sacrifice, right standing through his consecration, right standing through his sacrifice on the cross. Amen. Look at 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, we're talking about taking communion seriously, and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, so it can be done unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself or herself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. So before we receive the communion elements, we have to examine ourselves and make sure we're right with God. Make sure that anything we're guilty of, we've, we've confessed, we've acknowledged, we've repented of, we've asked the Lord for forgiveness. But also, we got to make sure we're in, we're in right standing with people around us. That's what it's about to say. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, that's the second time it's mentioned unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Now, damnation doesn't mean eternal damnation necessarily. It does mean judgment and condemnation. You're going to be in trouble. Why? Not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, we would say prematurely. That means they're dead early. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Now, this Bible verse, this passage teaches us that if we receive communion from the Lord's table, but we're not having communion or fellowship with a body or a member of the body, then we're unworthy. And if we try to fellowship with Jesus without being able to fellowship with our brothers or sisters in Christ, it can bring sickness and disease and weakness and even premature death upon us. That's pretty terrifying to think about. But now as a dad, I don't like it when my kids don't get along. And I don't want my kids, I don't want one of my kids to come and love on me when they've just been rude to their sibling. And God the Father, he's exactly like that. He doesn't want us to come and act like we're okay with him when we're not okay with one another in the body. Years ago, when I really learned this lesson, it was 1996. It was sometime in the late spring, early summer. Let me get that right. Yeah, that's right. And I was sick, and I could not shake the sickness, and I never got sick. And the sinus issue got into my lungs, so I had this deep, wet cough, and I couldn't shake it. And I prayed and got in every prayer line. I laid hands on myself, had everybody I knew praying for me. It wouldn't go away. And Pastor Vaughn in those days was encouraging us that when you're baby Christians and you're new to the things of God, your prayers get instantly answered. And I wasn't seeing that in the realm of divine healing. So after about a month or so of of this bad sickness not getting any better, I was praying. I said, Lord, what gives? What's the problem? Why, Why am I not getting healed? I should be healed. And somehow I ended in this passage. And as I read that, for this reason, many are weak, sickly among you, many asleep prematurely, not discerning the Lord's body. Having never been taught what I just taught you, the Lord spoke to me and said, you have no fellowship with your roommate And he named the roommate. Keith was his name. He didn't go by Keith, though. You're out of fellowship with Keith. And Keith is a member of my body, he said. This is what he said instantly. His instant, I just knew I was wrong. I was sick because I hated my roommate who was a brother in Christ. He got on my nerves. And my heart had grown sour towards him. And I said, Lord, I 
all right, I've never heard teaching like this before. I believe this is you telling me. If I'm sick and I can't get healed because I can't have a peaceful relationship with Keith, please forgive me. And confirm this teaching for me because I've never heard this and I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't, I don't endorse fleecing God or saying, Lord, I was asking for confirmation through my pastor is really what I was doing. I wasn't asking for a fleece. I was asking for pastoral confirmation. That was a Saturday night. If it wouldn't happen that the next Sunday, that morning, the next morning, Pastor Vaughn taught this exact same passage. We're talking 1996. I have written this passage and taught it the exact same way he taught it 14 years after, well, before I wrote this. And now, what is that, 24 years ago? Or tw- yeah, I don't know. It's a long time ago. Pastor Vaughn taught it the exact same way. Sometimes he said, if we don't discern the Lord's body, if we're hateful to each other, if we're rude towards each other, if we're mean towards each other, we'll get sick and we won't be able to shake it. And your problem is you won't walk in forgiveness. And I said, Lord, I see it. If you'll forgive me now, I'll go home and repent to my roommate. So I went home and I repented to my roommate, sat him down and said, Keith, I've been a jerk to you. I've been rude to you for two semesters now. Please forgive me. He said, okay. He had no grief against me. He didn't even know I was hateful towards him. He just thought I had attitude. He just thought I was a grumpy, I don't know. The next morning I woke up with every symptom gone. Absolutely every symptom gone when I hadn't been able to shake it for probably pushing six weeks to two months. I don't remember the time period. It was a long time though. This passage teaches us to judge ourselves of sin before taking communion. The term unworthily refers to the hypocrisy of partaking of communion, which is the Lord's body, while you're out of fellowship and angry and unforgiving of your brother or sister in Christ, also the Lord's body. We must judge ourselves, be honest, and repent of all known sins before we partake of the communion elements so we don't bring judgment, sickness, weakness, or even death upon ourselves. 1 John 3, 15, Whosoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. First John says just hate is the equivalent of murder. We got a lot of murderers in the body of Christ. It will be hard to fellowship with God in communion when he views you as a murderer. Anytime you let hate set up in your heart, God is going to view you as a murderer. And he's not going to want to really fellowship with you until you repent of the murder that's in your heart. First John 4.20 If a man say, I love God, and hates his brother... He is a liar. I think he's lying about the point that he he loves God. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? So these verses kind of help us judge ourselves in our treatment and our attitude towards other members of the body of Christ. I don't really care what's been done to you. You have to forgive. Forgiveness does not mean you have to forget Forgiveness does not mean you have to have fellowship. Forgiveness means you drop the charges. A lot of forgiveness requires that you never fellowship with somebody again because they're not safe to. They're not safe to fellowship with. Amen. It will be hard to fellowship with God in communion when he views you as a liar. In one passage, he says you're a murderer. In another passage, he says you're a liar. God wants us to commune with him and our brothers and sisters in Christ. He wants the whole family to come together. It makes Thanksgiving dinner better. 
It makes Mother's Day better. It makes Christmas better when the whole family can fellowship in love together. May we learn to do so and glorify our Father in heaven. Amen. Father, I thank you for this lesson on communion, a celebration of the Lord's table. May these truths bless all the saints that listen, and may your, your body and your church be strengthened because of it. In Jesus' name, amen.